Let's return to our series through the book of Genesis by going to Genesis chapter 15. If you are new here, we are going verse by verse through the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings. Last time we considered how God made a covenant with Abram. God told Abram in verse 7, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. Abram said in verse 8, Whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? God told Abram to take a heifer, she-goat, and a ram, all of three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon, which means God was going to establish a covenant with Abram. Abram understood this, so he divided the heifer, the goat, and the ram into two pieces, laid each piece one against another in a row, Then God told Abram how his descendants were going to be strangers in another land and that there there they would be in servitude. They would be afflicted for 400 years. But God said he would judge that nation and afterwards Abram's or Abraham's posterity would come out of that nation with great substance. And on this night, God represented by a smoking furnace and a burning lamp walked between the animal pieces. He made a covenant with Abram. And God was saying, if I don't fulfill my end of this, may I be cut in pieces. May I be just as these animal carcasses. And also we talked about the fulfillment of this covenant would be dependent upon God and not Abram. Abram was in a deep sleep by God, so that he could not walk through the pieces. This is all of the Lord. And then I tried to take this account and make application to the new covenant, which Christ established through his blood and sacrificial death. And I encourage you to listen to last week's message if you missed it, because if you struggle with security at all, I think it'll be a help to you. Our salvation is all upon the Lord. He saves and he keeps what a blessing. All right. Well, I wasn't able to finish this chapter last time. <laughs> so this morning, we're going to finish chapter 15 by considering the land covenant. And this will most mostly be a Bible study this morning. I don't understand why I need to know this. Well, it's in the Bible. Amen. You know, I'm discovering it would be a lot easier if I would stop going verse by verse. I'm... <laughs> Just about tired of controversial subjects at the moment. And it seems like every message, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, we're, uh, you know, where's the part about you must be born again? Um, Look with me in chapter 15. Let's read verses 17 through 21. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaims, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, And the Jebusites. Well, what an interesting passage to land on. 
with the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas. There's a lot of talk today about the land over there. Who has a right to the land and who doesn't? It's a very controversial subject. I wish it wasn't, not in church, but maybe it will be for some of you. This controversial subject has led to political movements such as Zionism, anti-Zionism. Those, those issues have greatly affected American politics. It has even led to policies. It's also led to an ideology known as Christian Zionism, which uses verses like chapter 15, verse 18, as their basis, and of course other verses. It's a very complex situation. It's far more complex than most realize because we live oftentimes in the bubble of our generation. And we think the way it is now is how it's always been. And, and that's not the case, especially with this subject. The modern land dispute needs to be studied without any predisposed biases. That's very hard to do. And to understand what's going on today, one really needs to go back to the latter end of the Ottoman Empire and study it forward. And what you'll discover, I'm not going to get into this today, you'll discover that at one time, there were three sets of people groups in the land of Palestine that got along just fine. Now, don't worry, my intention is, is not to look at this land covenant through a political or historical lens today. But because of the importance of the land covenant and how it impacts biblical thought in our day, I feel like necessity is laid upon me to examine this passage a little more deeply through the lens of God's Word. What does God's Word say? We can probably sum up the whole debate by asking the question, does God still owe the land to the physical descendants of Abraham, who later became known as the children of Israel? You may recall before Genesis 15, 18, God had already promised to give the land to Abram and his seed. In chapter 12, verse 7, chapter 13, verse 15 and 17, and in chapter 15, verse 7, and that's why it's called the promised land. And here in Genesis 15, 18, God wraps up all those promises into a covenant made with Abram. God walked between the animal carcasses, indicating that if he doesn't do this, then he should be dead. So God has obligated Himself to fulfill these promises through the strength of this covenant. Remember that before this covenant, God had only said that He would give the land. But now with this becoming a covenant, God says in verse 18, Unto thy seed have I given the land. And God now speaks of it as if the land had already been given. And it shows the, the certainty of God fulfilling this covenant. Now back to the question at hand, does God still owe the land to the physical descendants of Abraham? Has God fulfilled this already, or does it still need to be fulfilled? Now, if you're here today and you don't understand the importance of this just yet, that's okay. As you grow, as you study the Word of God, you'll find this is a very 
important subject because of how it impacts eschatology. Say, what's that? That's the study of end times. Is everybody okay? So, let's break this down biblically. First we see God says, Unto thy seed have I given this land. Now which seed is God referring to? The word seed can be a difficult term to understand because it can be used in the singular or plural without the use of an S at the end. There's a lot of words like that in the English language. For example, I am a sheep of God's pasture. We are collectively all sheep of God's pasture. It can be used in the plural or the singular. When God said to Abram, unto thy seed, is it singular or plural? You say, why is that a big deal? Because of what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3. He wrote this in Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And there are times in the Bible when seeds with an S is used. For example, the parable of the sower. But when we read about this in the Old Testament, it's singular. Or it's used without the S, I should say. So based upon that passage that I just read out of Galatians 3, couldn't we really just sum up the entire land debate as the land belonging to Christ? Whoop! After all, the land was promised to Abraham's seed. (laughs) And according to Galatians 3, the promises were made to a seed as of one, which is Christ. Now, I think when we consider the land being spoken about as an everlasting possession, then it makes sense to view that promise in light of Christ. But as always, context is everything. Notice in verse 13, God said to Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. It goes on to say, they shall afflict them. In verse 14 it says, whom they shall serve. Afterwards shall they come out. And verse 16 says, they shall come hither again. Clearly the context here of thy seed in verses 13 through 16 refers to Abraham's seed as his physical descendants, plural. And since in verse 16, God says, they shall come hither again, meaning they will return to the land. I think when God says in verse 18, unto thy seed have I given this land, it's referring to the seed plural, the descendants of Abraham. Now we're trying to answer the question, does God still owe the land to the physical descendants of Abraham? Well, let's keep going. And let's try to stay in the context of the Bible. Not favorite teachers. Not favorite seminaries. Not man's opinion. In in context, when should Abram's seed be expected to inherit the land? According to verses 13 through 16, Abram's seed would be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. They would be afflicted 400 years. And in verse 16 we read, But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. 
Therefore, it makes the most sense contextually in my mind that Abram's seed should expect to inherit the land sometime after they come out of Egypt. Is everybody picking up what I'm putting down? And to further establish the timing, consider the inhabitants that are listed in verses 19 through 21. These would be those who would be dwelling within the borders of the land when Abram's seed returns. Where are these people groups today? Amen. It makes sense to me that when it came time to inherit the land according to this covenant, then these people groups would still be in the land. But they do not exist today. Therefore, when it comes to the timing to inherit the land according to this covenant, then these people groups would still be in the land, and the timing would be when they came out of Egypt. Right? Is there anything in God's Word to show this, to to prove this, that it has been fulfilled within this contextual window of time? Because if it can be shown that God has already fulfilled this land covenant of Genesis 15-18, then God doesn't owe any physical descendants of Abraham the land today. Now, try to stay with me. If you've always been taught that God still needs to fulfill this land covenant, and that He still owes the land to Israel, and a lot of this goes deeper than we have time to cover today, stay with me. We're going to look at some other passages. We're going to take a trip through God's Word. Like I said, we're going to do a Bible study. Before we go there, let's take note of the boundaries that are listed here in verse 18. Notice that it says, From the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, it's very difficult to know what is meant by the river of Egypt. Some say it refers to the Nile River, but that doesn't really make sense logically because Israel would have technically still been in the land when they were enslaved in Egypt. And God is clearly saying, you're going to be in another land that is not yours and that they would return again. So I think we can rule that out. For what it's worth, I'm currently of the mind The river of Egypt is likely referring to what the Bible calls the waters of Sihor. I think this makes the most sense to mark the southern boundary between the land and Egypt. I'm not saying I'm dogmatic about that, but that's where I'm at today. And now, go with me. Let's take a journey through the Word of God. Answer this question, does God still owe the land to Israel or has it already been fulfilled? Let's go to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23, I'd like to hear the pages turning, amen. Don't exaggerate it, Cindy. Exodus 23. I can see her now. Exodus 23, beginning in verse 29. Look at what it says, verses 29 through 31. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate, And the beasts of the field multiply against thee. By little and little I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea even unto the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert unto the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and thou shalt drive them out before thee. Now what's happening here is God is reaffirming His promise 
to Moses that he's going to give the land to the children of Israel. And God says, you will inherit the land. I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand. It's just a reaffirmation. I'm just building the case here. Go to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers 14. And we're going to begin in verse 30. The Bible says in Numbers 14 and verse 30, Doubtless ye shall not come into the land, what? Concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save Caleb the son of Jeff, Jephunneh, Jephunny, however you want to say that. I, I've heard people say it that way. I'm not trying to be Jephunny, but you know, <laughs> it is kind of Jephunny. And Joshua the son of Nun, he wasn't Catholic, Amen. But your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, them will I bring in. And they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in the wilderness. Now evidently, if you know the context of where we're at here, God was going to take them into the land shortly after coming out of Egypt. He, he took them up another way. We heard that in Sunday school. But... In, in adult Sunday school, sorry. But when they got to the land, you'll remember that they sent out the spies. And only two, Joshua and Caleb, brought back a good report. All the others murmured and complained and, and all of that kind of thing. And so God says, that generation was going to die in the wilderness over this 40-year period. But God says, I have sworn you will dwell therein and your children will I bring in and they shall know the land. Let's go to Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11, beginning in verse 22. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 11, verse 22, For if ye shall diligently keep all these commandments which I command you to do them, and to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to cleave unto Him, then will the Lord drive out all these nations from before you, and ye shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours. From the wilderness uh, and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even unto the utmost sea shall your coast be. Now by Deuteronomy, their, their wilderness time is coming to an end. And they're about to enter the land. And the Lord says again here, I will give you the land. Every place that the sole of your foot treads, I'm going to give it to you from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean or the Great Sea or unto the coast here. All right, Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, let's look at verse 7. And Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of a good courage, for thou must go with this people unto the land which the Lord hath sworn unto their fathers to give them, and thou shalt cause them to inherit it. So now we're at the point Moses' life is about to come to an end. And Moses now charges Joshua to take the land and inherit it. Don't miss this phrase as the Lord hath sworn unto their fathers. That's a very 
important statement in light of the land covenant of Genesis 15, 18, because when it says unto your fathers, it's referring all the way back to the beginning with Abram, the patriarch that started it all. And of course, it gets passed down to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, your fathers. So it's important to see that phrase. And so the promises made to Abram is about to be fulfilled. Go to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, look at verses 2 through 4. It says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, unto the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. Now, it's after the death of Moses. Joshua is taking over. God is reiterating to Joshua what he had told Moses. God says, I'm going to give you the land from the Euphrates to the great sea. And throughout the book of Joshua, we have the wars of Canaan chronicled for us. Go to Joshua chapter 11. Joshua 11, verse 23. Now, remember where we're at. We're trying to see what's the context. After they came out of Egypt, right, and their borders needed to fit this, these inhabitants needed to be in the land. Come to chapter 11, look at verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord said unto Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance unto Israel, according to their divisions by their tribes, and the land rested from war. Now we're going to see here in just a minute, they aren't done officially taking all of it, possessing all of the land yet. But I believe at this point in chapter 11, we're being told how they have been victorious against all those who have openly come out against them. And, and now they control everything militarily. How do we know that? The land has rested from war. And so now they're going to have to go and get people. And they were on the march, but these were people that had come out against them. Go to Joshua chapter 13. We'll see that they still needed to possess some land here because this is the most common argument uh, that I hear people make. Well, God still owes them the land. Chapter 13, look at, uh, in verse 1. We'll go down to verse 7. Now Joshua was old and stricken in years, and the Lord said unto him, Thou art old and stricken in years. Amen. That's comforting. At least he didn't say he's ugly. Amen. And Joshua was ugly, and the Lord said, Thou art ugly. Amen. And there remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. This is the land that yet remaineth, all of the borders of the Philistines and all Geshuri from Sihor, which is before Egypt, even unto the borders of Ekron northward, which is counted to the Canaanite. Five lords of the Philistines, the Gazathites and the Ashtothites and the Esclanites and the Gittites and the Ekronites, also the uh, Avites, from the south, all the land of the Canaanites, uh, anyway, we keep getting all these names and where the boundaries are, but look at what it says a little bit later on here. Them will I drive out from before the children of Israel. Only divide thou it by lot unto the Israelites for an inheritance, as I have commanded thee. Now therefore, divide this land for an inheritance unto the nine tribes and the half-tribe 
of Manasseh. And so we find here there's still much land that needed to be possessed. God says He's going to drive them out before the children of Israel. And so certain is this fulfillment that God says, go ahead and divide up the land. Go ahead and divide it for an inheritance. Go to chapter 21. Chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. Don't miss this now. Joshua 21, verse 43. And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which He sware to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest round about according to all that He sware unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. There failed not aught any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. It all came to pass. Now, if you aren't convinced that God has already fulfilled His land covenant from Genesis 15, 18, then this passage that I just read ought to make it plain. It clearly says the Lord gave them all the land which He swore to their fathers and they possessed it. It all came to pass. How much clearer can it be? Now we either let the Word of God say say what it says or we say, no, I've got my own eschatology ideas and I'm going to make that fit. Go to Joshua chapter 23. Don't worry, I'm almost done with the turning, okay? Joshua 23, look at verse 14. This is just kind of a reiteration here. And behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and ye know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. This might be the last one, but go with me to 1 Kings. So I think already we've shown that as they came out of Egypt within that window of contextual time of Genesis 15, with those inhabitants in the land, they have possessed it. God did everything He swore unto the fathers. Now, a common argument by those who believe God still owes the land to Israel is taken here in, I'm in 2 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 4. I want you to look at verse 25. All right, 1 Kings 4.25, look at what it says. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely every man under his vine and under his fig tree from Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. And what people will say is that Dan to the north and Beersheba to the south does not encompass the whole land. Therefore, the land covenant was never fulfilled. But let's back up and read what it says beginning in verse 20. Same chapter. Judah and Israel were many as the sand which is by the sea in multitude. Isn't that part of what God said would happen to them? Eating and drinking and making merry. And Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from where? The river unto the land of the Philistines, unto the border of Egypt. They brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. Look at verse 24. For he had dominion over all the region on this side, the river from Tipsha even to Aza, over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on all sides round about him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba, all 
the days of Solomon. Now, what's with this phrase from Dan to Beersheba? It shows up nine times in the Word of God. And I'll go ahead and just make some people mad. All it is is a proverbial saying. It is just a proverbial saying talking about all the land from Dan to Beersheba. Lee Greenwood did this in his song, God Bless the USA. Don't act like you don't know that song. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee. Across the plains to Texas. From Detroit down to Houston. New York to L.A. We might say in South Dakota from Sioux Falls to Rapid City. Right? Encompasses the whole state. But there's more beyond Rapid City. Right? For all y'all that live that way. It's just a proverbial expression. Given all these passages we've covered, how can we possibly say the land covenant made with Abram in Genesis 15, 18 still needs to be fulfilled? And yet many are teaching that it's unfulfilled. They say Israel did, they did possess some of the land, but they never got it all. And when we don't take God at His word, it causes a great deal of error in the area of eschatology. Now, for sake of time, I'm just going to read you these. You don't have to turn, but they all verify Israel possessed the land. 2 Samuel 8.3 says, David smote all Hadad Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Okay. As he went to recover his border at the river Euphrates. If he's recovering it, they had it. 1 Chronicles 13.5, so David gathered all Israel together from Shihor of Egypt, even unto the entering of Hemath to bring the ark of God from kirjath Jerem. 1 Chronicles 18.3, And David smote Hadad, and he went to establish his dominion by the river Euphrates. 2 Chronicles 9.26, And he, speaking of Solomon, reigned over all the kings from the river, even unto the land of the Philistines, and to the border of Egypt. And we probably should turn to this, but, but just listen. Nehemiah 9, verses 7 and 8. Now, you've got to understand, Nehemiah, they're coming out of captivity. They had just spent 70 years in the Babylonian captivity, and, and they're coming out of that. And it says, Thou art the Lord God who didst choose Abram and broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gaveth him the name of Abraham and foundest his heart faithful before thee and madest a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Girgashites. Wait a minute. Isn't that those the ones we saw in chapter 15 of Genesis? Uh, to give it, I say, to his seed. Listen to this. And hast performed thy words. For thou art righteous. Nehemiah 9, continuing there, verses 23 and 24. Their children also multipliedest thou as the stars of heaven, and broughtest them into the land, concerning which thou hast promised to their fathers that they should go in to possess it. So the children went in and possessed the land. And I could keep reading, but I'll stop there. God's Word is so clear. They possessed all the land that was promised to their fathers, which means back to Abram. Why are there so many teaching that this still needs to be fulfilled? Well, I mentioned what I mentioned two Wednesday nights ago. It's a major problem when people try to use the Old Testament to interpret the New. It doesn't work that way. The New Testament interprets the Old. Another common problem is when people try to force what they want God's Word to say. Did you know there's no mention of the land going to Israel in the New Testament? 
Not one. I would think we would be given the fulfillment of something of this magnitude if God said, let me be cut in twain. And it hasn't been fulfilled. You would think something of that magnitude would be recorded somewhere in the New Testament. But it's not. In fact, the only mention of the land in the New Testament is Acts 7.45. And all it does is verify the land had already been possessed. This is Stephen talking to the council, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus, which is talking about Joshua. They're the same name interchangeably across the Hebrew and the Greek. It says, into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David. It's a perfect fulfillment. Now, let me be clear. I'm not suggesting I have it all figured out. I still have questions, to be honest with you. I I do. But this is where I'm currently at with Genesis 15, 18. And to those who disagree, I would humbly request... If it wasn't fulfilled in the Old Testament, please show me where it was or will be fulfilled in the New Testament. And for the record, I'm not alone in my position. I was pleased to discover what all the old commentators had to say. Here's some of their their comments. Albert Barnes on 1 Kings 4.21 wrote, The extent of Solomon's kingdom was in accordance with the promises made to Abraham. Adam Clark on Genesis 15.18 This promise was fully accomplished in the days of David and Solomon. And then what he writes on 1 Kings 4.21, Thus he appears to have possessed all the land of God, covenanted with Abraham to give to his posterity. Family Bible note says on 1 Kings 4.21, And though the fulfillment of his promise may be long delayed in due time, they will be accomplished. And then he says, see Genesis 15.18. John Gill wrote on Genesis 15, 18, And from hence to the river Euphrates, the eastern boundary, was the utmost extent of it which it was ever possessed, as it was in the times of David and Solomon. He's saying it was fulfilled under David and Solomon. Matthew Henry on Genesis 15, 18, In David's time and Solomon's, their jurisdiction extended to the utmost of these limits. He cites 2 Chronicles 9, 26, which I read. And then he writes this on 1 Kings 4, 21, Now was fulfilled the promise made to Abraham concerning the increase of his seed as well as that concerning the extent of their dominion. Genesis 15, 18. Matthew Poole on Genesis 15, 18. The accomplishment hereof, see 2 Samuel 8, 3 and 1 Kings 4, 21. They all believed it was fulfilled. This is a new teaching to say that it isn't. Now, like I said earlier, when the land is spoken of as an eternal inheritance... We ought to recognize it as Galatians 3.16 says. And now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So here's the bottom line. The land ultimately belongs to the Lord. Somebody say amen right there. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Hey, the earth is his footstool. Consider this. If the current land over there was so great, then why is the Lord going to purge this earth with fire and then bring down a new Jerusalem? A heavenly Jerusalem. A heavenly city. Well, I might have bored most of you to death. Let me try to leave you with a challenge today. Since I've already covered a lot of what I'm about to say in a previous message, I'm not going to get hung up here. This earth... And all that's... Listen, don't set your affections on it. Hebrews 11 makes this clear. 
Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, it says, and, and it's talking about how Abram, Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, I said this last time we were here. If they confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth and he was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, then where has he got to look to? It's not going to be upon this earth because he's a pilgrim and a stranger. He must have to look heavenward. Amen. And so he's looking for this city, for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And if truly they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country... That is, an heavenly. Whoop. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. Amen. Hebrews 12, 22, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. Hebrews 13, 14, For we have here no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Here's my point. Don't set your affections upon this earth. There is no holy ground on this earth, my friends, except for where the Lord is. When Moses came and he saw the fire and the Lord spake to him out of that, the Lord said, take off your shoes because the ground you're on is holy. What made it holy? The presence of Almighty God. God ain't present over there. What makes it holy? Nothing. Don't set your affections on this earth. This earth is sin sick. The Lord's going to, hey, it's so bad, the Lord said, I'm going to make it a new earth. What? A new earth. Why are we so caught up in things? This is not our final home. There is nothing of eternal value to desire here. We have a better home awaiting. We have a better city to dwell in one day. Revelation 21, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no more sea. Let me just preach right there. Woo! There was no more sea. What did God say over in the Old Testament? I'm going to take your sins. I'm going to cast them into the sea. Oh, mercy. But in that day, God said there is no more sea. The sins are gone. As far as the east is from the west, they've been forgiven. Mercy, I don't have time to preach. Y'all quit being so nice to me. we got to finish this thing. Amen. New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The tabernacle of God is with men. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. The former things are passed away. The former things are passed away. Revelation 21, later on in verse 22, And I saw no temple therein. (laughs) Why not? For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. Why? For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Anyway, good stuff here. The gates shall not be shut. There'll be no night. There shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me bring it to a close. Our holy war is not for some stretch of real estate in the Middle East. It's not for some earthly kingdom. Our holy war is for the souls of men, the kingdom of God. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
We do not wrestle flesh and blood. Our enemy is spiritual. It's the devil himself, the one who does not want to see men come to Christ for salvation. We need to do all we can to bring people to Christ so that they can be saved. That they might experience our Lord throughout all eternity while dwelling in a better country than this earth has anything to offer. This world, meaning this world system, is not our home. We are just passing through, my friends. There is something better awaiting. Why are we so worked up over a land that's going to be destroyed by God? We are citizens of a heavenly country. We need to keep our eyes on the prize, not be distracted by the things of this earth. Would you pray with me, please?